welcome to another look into the life and message of Elizabeth Elliot. Our thoughts today, the stamp on our hearts. Elizabeth called us to live to a higher standard each day, to not be satisfied with a little religion as a shallow substitute for giving God our best. As this podcast series continues in the coming weeks, we'll hear from family, friends, and others who are influenced by Elizabeth's life and message. We are continuing our extended series on Operation Alka and other events during Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. And we have normally two Gateway to Joy programs as part of the podcast. And once again, we will. Uh, Today, it's Gateway to Joy 101. Bearing the Stamp of Christ, and Program 102, The Making of a Christian. Have you ever wondered how Gateway to Joy, the radio program, got its start? Well, Jan Wismer had a lot to do with that, and she'll be a part of the podcast today. Also, Jean Hamilton, she'll talk about how Elizabeth was a mentor to her, in fact, is still teaching her to this day about prayer and perfume. Uh, Stay with us for that. But first, we go to Program 101, Bearing the Stamp of Christ. Hey, have you known somebody whose life bore the stamp of Christ? Elizabeth had uh, people in her life that were like that, consistent, humble, faithful. Some thoughts on bearing the stamp of Christ. There are some Christians whose lives seem in a very special and visible way to bear the stamp of Christ. I'm so very grateful for those that I have known personally whose lives have borne that stamp. I think of my own parents. I would not have defined them as bearing the stamp of Christ when I was a child, but I saw in them as I grew up examples of consistency, simple, humble, faithful, consistency. We six children have often talked about our parents and the influence they had on us and what it was about them that so shaped our own lives. And I'm sure that we all agree that consistency was one of the primary characteristics. What they said, they meant. What they professed, they lived. There was no hypocrisy. There was no falsity in their religion. It was a a seven-day-a-week kind of thing. What they believed, they lived by. What they said in church, they lived by for the other six days of the week. And we're very grateful for that. We were very grateful for the fact that they brought into our home many great Christians, people whose lives bore the stamp of Christ. We got used to hearing missionary stories at our dining room table. We learned to know many Christian leaders And they had an unspoken influence in our lives. In addition to personal contact, we were surrounded with biographies, with the life stories of many great Christians. I think of the Hudson Taylor books. There were two thick, pale green volumes about the life of Hudson Taylor, the founder of the China Inland Mission. I remember how greatly I was influenced by the story of his love life, how he had committed that area of his life to God and prayed for a godly wife, and how God gave him not just one but two. After the first wife died, he had a second wife named Maria, and how he had 
surrendered that crucial area of his life, his desire for a wife, to God. Then I read the diaries of David Brainerd, a missionary in New Jersey to the Indians back in the 1700s. Then there was James Fraser of Lisu Land and Amy Carmichael. There's a great biography, rather recent one, called To the Golden Shore, a biography of Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary to leave these shores. He went to Burma. It's the most gripping, most adventurous book that I think I've ever read, telling his missionary life. In The Life of Hudson Taylor, I read this. We were to prove that no unforeseen mischance had happened, but that these circumstances, which seemed so trying, were necessary links in the chain of a divinely ordered providence, guiding to other and wider spheres. He was leading by a way that we knew not, but it was nevertheless his way. I have discovered in my own life that usually God's leading is by a way that I know not. When I pray for something, I usually have a few footnotes to give to God as to how he might possibly answer that prayer. You know, a few suggestions as if God needs my suggestions. But ordinarily, his way is one that I didn't know. And that is his way of teaching us to trust him, teaching us that he does know what he's doing, that he has got the whole world in his hands, and that the circumstances which seem so trying are necessary links in the chain of a divinely ordered providence. Even when things look anything but divinely ordered, he is still there. So biography furnishes us the opportunity to see the links in the chain which we so often miss in our own lives. I mentioned in my last talk that I had an inkling that maybe God was prodding me to write a biography of my husband, Jim Elliott. The fact that he was a good letter writer and a, a diary keeper, a journal keeper, made me feel that I had some treasures there in written form which I really had no right to keep for myself. I ought to share with the rest of the world. And so the next thing on my schedule after he died seemed to be to write his biography. I set to work at once, rereading all the letters that he had written to me, and that, of course, brought tears every now and then. I also reread his journals, which he had given me permission to read earlier, and I began to write to his friends and his family asking if they had any letters which they would be willing to share with me. And then as I began to organize them and make notes on the biography, I began the actual writing of a book called Shadow of the Almighty. The title, of course, is taken from the psalm, He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty, the 91st Psalm. And it seemed to me that Jim had in a measure dwelt in the secret place of the Most High. He was a young man with a heart for God, with a determination to be obedient and to let his life count for God, insofar as he dwelt in that shadow, in that measure, I believe, God has used him to influence literally hundreds of other lives. 
There's hardly ever a time when I go out to speak anywhere where I don't meet some young man who comes up to tell me that the reading of the biography of Jim Elliot, Shadow of the Almighty, had really changed his life. Let me read to you from the preface to that book. It begins with a quotation from 1 John. It is only when we obey God's laws that we can be quite sure that we really know him. The man who claims to know God but does not obey his laws is not only a liar, he lives in self-delusion. In practice, the more a man learns to obey God's laws, the more truly and fully does he express his love for him. Obedience is the test of whether we really live in God or not. The life of a man who professes to be living in God must bear the stamp of Christ. And there, you see, is where I got the title for this talk, Bearing the Stamp of Christ. If we're Christians, we should be living in God. If we're living in God, it ought to make a visible difference. When the five men were killed in Ecuador, they were called martyrs. Well, do you know what the original word martyrs means? Martyr is a Greek word, and it simply means witnesses. The New Testament word martyr means witnesses, not necessarily someone who literally is killed because of his testimony. If that were the case, then Jim and Ed and Pete and Raj and Nate could not properly be called martyrs because they never spoke a word of testimony about Jesus Christ to the people that killed them. Those Alcas had no idea what they were there for. Their idea was that probably these missionaries were coming to eat them. But I believe that they were martyrs in the deepest sense, in that they were witnesses. Their lives bore the stamp of Christ. They lived in such a way as to make a difference. Anyone observing their lives would have noticed that there were some visible signs of some invisible realities, the reality of the presence of God. Now, each of us can be a witness. We may not lay down our lives in the sense that a missionary lays down his life when he gets speared to death or boiled in a pot by cannibals. But if we are living for Christ, then doesn't it follow naturally that we also die for him? If what we happen to be doing when it comes time to die was the will of God, we're martyrs, witnesses. The logical conclusion is that living for Christ means dying for Christ. A witness is one who simply makes the truth visible. We can be witnesses in our workplace. I may be speaking to someone who is driving to or from work. Have you thought of the fact that it's not just a job? It's not just a place where you earn money in order to keep body and soul together? Or perhaps you have the kind of a job which you have always longed for. Maybe you feel as though now you're really making it and you find it fulfilling. It contributes to your self-image. You're tickled to death that you can tell your friends that this is what you do now as opposed to what you were doing 10 years ago. Do you do it for yourself or do you do it for God? If you do it for God, let me encourage you to realize that it will be fulfilling. 
even if it would look on the surface to be the most unfulfilling kind of a job in the world. Remember that you have a master, and it's to him that you must answer. Do you do the job just for the boss? Do you get away with any little thing that you can get away with as long as the boss is not looking? Or does your life bear the stamp of Christ? Are you working for a heavenly master? Holiness is God's object. Are you saying, but I really don't have any role models? Let me encourage you to read Christian biographies. It's amazing how you can find role models and even heroes, people worth imitating, worth emulating. Gateway to Joy 101, Bearing the Stamp of Christ. I mentioned that we're going to hear from two people today other than Elizabeth. We'll be hearing from Jan Wismer and how Gateway to Joy got its start. Gene Hamilton was a longtime friend of Lars Gren and Elizabeth Elliot Gren. Uh, from Charleston, let's hear from Jean. Just recently in her book, and I can't say the name of it right now, oh, it's um, um, Love Has a Price Tag. There is a chapter in there, it's called Notes on Prayer. I read it again this summer. I'm sure I'd read it before, but I was, I'm rereading some of her books. And I ran it off because I wanted all the, the gals that I'm mentoring to, I wanted us to read it together. And one of the neat things that she said is that there was incense in the, uh, in the temple, and a perfumer had to make that incense. And it was very expensive. And it just sort of floated up and floated away. But it was to represent our prayers. He loves the smell of our prayers. And that's just dear to my heart. So even still, she's teaching me. Longtime friend of Lars and Elizabeth, it's Jean Hamilton. Thank you, Jean. But right now, let's get to the making of a Christian. That's Gateway to Joy 102. Jim Elliott's life bore the stamp of Christ. What were Elizabeth's first impressions of Jim? Were they good or bad? What did Dave, Elizabeth's brother, think about Jim? And what about those white memory scripture cards? Did Jim like a a good joke? Stay tuned. Here's the making of a Christian. We've been talking about one particular Christian, one that I knew very well. He happened to be my first husband, Jim Elliott. His life bore the stamp of Christ. I want to tell you a little of my own first impressions of Jim Elliott. He and I both went to Wheaton College, a small liberal arts college west of Chicago. I was one year ahead of him. He was in my brother Dave's class. And Dave Howard used to say to me, you got to meet this guy, Elliot. you got to meet this guy, Elliot. I mean, he's terrific. You'd like him. Well, Dave's my little brother. I wasn't all that excited about meeting my little brother's friends. But I have to confess that I did sort of begin to notice Jim Elliot around the campus. I liked Jim Elliot's smile. He had beautiful, white, very even teeth, and he smiled from ear to ear. I used to notice that he stood in dining hall lines with little white cards in his hand. I was curious as to what those cards were and found out from somebody else, not that I spoke to Jim, that they were either navigator scripture memory cards that he was memorizing or Greek verbs. He had the English on one side of the card and the Greek verb on the other, and he would get other kids that were standing in the line to drill him. 
He had a forthright way about him that I liked. He spoke up. He spoke out with vigor and humor. I liked his sense of humor. He was a campus clown. Well, those were some of my first impressions. They were not of a great spiritual giant. I didn't think of him particularly as living in the shadow of the Almighty or bearing the stamp of Christ. These phrases may sound a little bit high-flown, referring to a college man. And yet, and yet, well, we'll talk about that later. Let me give you some of his background. His ancestors came from Scotland. They immigrated to Ontario, Canada, and then to Saskatchewan, and then to British Columbia. His father was born in Alberta, and when he was a young man, he began to travel with an older man, a preacher by the name of Harry Ironside, who was a traveling preacher out there in the West, and he took the young Fred Elliott with him as he was traveling. Then, to leave the Elliott side for a moment, let me go back to Bern, Switzerland. There was a young man in Bern who was the son of the civil engineer of that city, and he came to the United States and homesteaded in the state of Washington. There he married a ribbon maker's daughter and built for himself a beautiful oasis in that very desolate, dry grass country of eastern Washington. They raised sheep, and their daughter, Clara, who was in love with her father's foreman, happened to be there one day when a traveling preacher came along with a younger preacher with him. It was Harry Ironside and Fred Elliott. Fred Elliott noticed Clara Luganbuehl. He noticed particularly that she was with a young man on Monday night. On Tuesday night, when he went to the meeting where he and Harry were preaching, he noticed that Clara was there with a different young man. Eagerly, he looked for her in the audience on Wednesday night, and guess what? Clara was there with a third young man. So this gave Fred the courage to believe that maybe she would be willing to go out on Thursday night with number four. So he had the courage to ask her for a date, took her out on Thursday night, and eventually they were married. Clara went into chiropractic college and graduated as a chiropractor. Fred became a traveling preacher and evangelist, and they had four children. They lived in Portland, Oregon. Their third child was named Jim. He was born in 1927. He went to grade school in Portland and then to Benson Polytechnic High School, where he majored in architectural drawing. He was an orator in high school. He was also thought of as being very handsome and also very peculiar. He used to carry a Bible on top of his textbooks. It was his ambition to be president of the United States, and it was not difficult for his classmates to believe that he really might make it. He was one of those outspoken, forthright people that had a certain charisma of personality and the ability to stand up and speak at a moment's notice. One day he was out hunting with his friend Fisher, and as Fisher was climbing through a wire fence, his gun went off accidentally, and the bullet went through Jim's hair. Jim's older brother, Bert, started a garbage business in Portland. 
Back in those days, it was a private business to collect the garbage, and so they had a big old truck, and Bert drove the truck, and Jim rode on top of the garbage, sometimes swatting at the seagulls with sticks or maybe fluorescent tubes that he found in people's trash. They were a sight as they went roaring down the street. Then, besides being a garbage man and a hunter and an orator, a hopeful architect, he was a poet. He liked to write poetry and he liked to read poetry. He went to Wheaton College in 1945 with two goals. One was to get a Bachelor of Arts and the other was to get a degree called AUG, Approved Unto God. He wanted to be a soldier. He wanted to be under his commanding officer, whom he had chosen, Jesus Christ. One of his favorite scripture verses was 2 Timothy 2.4. A soldier on active service does not become entangled in civilian affairs. He must be wholly at his commanding officer's disposal. Jim Elliot had made a final choice. Jesus Christ was Lord of his life. I meet a lot of young college students who don't seem to have any very well-defined aims at all. If I ask them, what do you live for, sometimes I get a blank stare. One of the ways in which Jim pursued his aim of being approved unto God was to get up an hour earlier than he would have each day in order to have time to read his Bible and pray. In a letter to his 15-year-old sister, Jane, Jim wrote this, Begin each day with private reading of the Word and prayer. Bunyan has well said, Sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. From the very first, as you begin high school, give out gospel tracts to those you meet. Make a bold start. It's easier that way rather than trying to begin halfway through. Memorize scripture on the streetcar. Buy up the time. It's costly because it's fleeting. These are terse remarks and trite, but I wish someone had said them to me about Labor Day 1941. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. He set his alarm every night to waken him in time for prayer and study of the Bible. None of it gets to be old stuff, he wrote, for it is Christ in print, the living word. We wouldn't think of rising in the morning without a face wash, but we often neglect that purgative cleansing of the word of the Lord. It wakes us up to our responsibility. When he was a junior, he was invited to be business manager of the Tower, which was the college yearbook. This is what he wrote in his diary. They've asked me to take over the position of business manager next year. It would mean that I would get six grade points, free tuition for a year, and a $12,000 responsibility. But it would also mean late hours, a reduced class schedule, and participation in a lot of formal foolishness, which I find difficult to reconcile with my nonconformist attitudes. He rejected the offer. His family protested, and he wrote to them, Your letter arrived too late to dissuade me from my decision regarding the post on the Tower staff. Last weekend I was quite upset about the whole matter, but after a long session of prayer my mind became settled, and I found peace in believing that it was not the Lord's will that I take it. Yet I still cannot set down reasons for the decision, 
save this, that the Lord showed the psalmist the path of life, evidently by his simply lingering in his presence. Psalm 16:11. I waited on him, and somehow the answer came. I trust it was of the Spirit. A man's heart deviseth his way, said Solomon, but the Lord directeth his steps. My heart has devised to serve him. I must leave the next step to him. Sometimes in the preparation of a young soul who commits himself to serve the Lord, God seems to find it necessary to narrow that one's vision until it is clearly focused. Christians are often accused of being very narrow. Perhaps the explanation is that our vision is more clearly focused, more narrowly focused than that of a good many other people. Jim had a praying father, and I'm sure that that accounts for some of his spiritual success. He wrote to his father, I have felt the impact of your prayers in these past weeks. I am certain now that nothing has had a more powerful influence in this life of mine than your prayers. I was thinking today, Dad, how you used to read Proverbs to us. I can't remember much of what you read in the breakfast nook, but I find that the experience has left in my mind a profound respect and love for the old wise man's words. Thank God you took the time. The value of such is inestimable. The making of a Christian. Godly parents, prayer, giving the Bible its place, clarifying your aims, setting your face like a flint to do the will of God. Gateway to Joy 102, the making of a Christian. You know, the Gateway to Joy program began quite a few years ago, but how did it really get its start? Jan Wismer tells us about that. Come with me back to 1979. The setting is a radio studio on the campus of Grace College of the Bible in Omaha, Nebraska. There's a young woman there who's working the graveyard shift, so she decides to write a letter to Elizabeth Elliot. So she sits down at the Selectric typewriter, and the hum of the typewriter is in the background as she writes Elizabeth to tell her just how much she has appreciated the book, Let Me Be a Woman. And while this girl, this young college girl is writing this, God plants a seed in her heart that says, one day Elizabeth Elliot is going to be on the radio. In April of 1988, Back to the Bible invited Elizabeth Elliot to come and be the speaker for a 15-minute radio program. At that time, the Lord gave me these verses. I had in mind to build a house as a resting place. I had in mind to build a radio, pro, a radio stick program with Elizabeth Elliot. And David says, and I made preparations. And God said to me, all of this was drafted by the Lord's own hands. Now who is willing to give today with an open hand? It was God's work. He allowed me to have something to do with the beginning of it. And it was such a privilege to get to work with Elizabeth. Thank you, Jane. That was from the Wheaton College Memorial Service in July of 2015 as they remembered Elizabeth. Well, our podcast is indeed coming to an end. But let me thank you for joining us today and letting us come into your life at home, at the office, maybe as you were out exercising, wherever we found you today. Thanks for 
taking time to join us. And be sure to check out ElizabethElliot.org sometime. ElizabethElliot.org. On behalf of the Elizabeth Elliot Foundation, in cooperation with the Bible Broadcasting Network, you're invited back again next time as we continue thinking about Elizabeth's time in Ecuador. Until next time, may God remind you daily that you are loved with an everlasting love, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Mm-hmm.